Hi, I'm Peter Rao. And I'm Mike Duran. Welcome to Counterbalance. Peter, today we've got, we're going to have two friends of mine on, Liel Leibovitz and, and Jacob Siegel. They just wrote an article in Tablet Magazine that is causing lots of consternation in many different quarters. They wrote this article saying that the United States should end its military aid to Israel, but not for the usual reasons that you hear people call for ending military aid to Israel. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this just because um, I like articles that stir things up. And with that, looking forward to talking to them. Mike, over to you. Welcome, Liel and Jacob. The two of you have caused quite a stir in Tablet Magazine, calling for an end to U.S. Uh, military assistance to uh, Israel. Why don't we start this uh, by uh, turning to you, Liel, and just give us a quick summary of this very heretical argument that you have uh, made. Well, I will, uh, in, in, in good rabbinic fashion, of course, uh, defer to my learned colleague, uh, Jake, but, but rather comment uh, or make to sort of two or three kind of uh, preamble to the, to the argument uh, type of argument. Uh, first of all, I, I want to say that our argument to end USA to Israel uh, was an argument made for all the right reasons. Uh, I believe that there are a, a quite a bit of, or quite a few, wrong reasons to make this argument. The right reason uh, is at its core based on the following premise. It is based on the understanding, which is still, I think, uh, quite dim, even for a lot of people who uh, hold the so-called special relationship between Israel and the United States sacred, uh, that aid isn't uh, like you would imagine it, you know, a covered wagon loaded with with diamonds and gold arriving at just the right moment to allow the poor besieged Jews in the Middle East, you know, the, the comfortable material goods to save themselves from their enemies. Uh, it is rather a series of backdoor subsidies uh, to the U.S. arms industry that has... Uh, Really, as as Jacob and I will will you know dive into in the piece, and I'm sure we'll dive into in this conversation that have really very limited value uh, to Israel has a considerable value to the United States, which is basically buying access to one of the world's finest military industrial complexes, uh, uh, pennies on the dollar, allows the American um, administration to intervene. Uh, in Israel's affair, because after all, as say uh, the learned gentleman from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, had said again and again and again, $3.8 billion ought to come with some strings attached. And as a result, really sets Israel up as a stage on which uh, America could hold its uh, political psychodramas with Israel cast uh, as the villain in this morality play. We argue that it is time uh, for the relationship, which is indeed special and indeed indeed timeless and indeed predicated on, uh, you know, eternal truths uh, like both nations' uh, historical beliefs and, and, and religious convictions. Uh, it is time for this relationship to uh, to take itself to the open market, uh, where Israel could be free to sell uh, its many, many, many wares, which it now has, uh, to whichever bidder it wants, and as a result, also purchase whatever it wishes to purchase uh, from Washington, D.C. Uh, and it is time to sever a an agreement that, as Jake, I'm sure, will, will elaborate, uh, really is a relic of the Cold War that is simply no longer true to our current geopolitical reality. With that, why don't we uh, turn to Jake, and Jake, let's get your take on the on the article before we start grilling you guys. The bottom line is that we are describing, first of all, uh, a set of myths surrounding the relationship. So the, the first task of the article, the first task of the argument is to dispel these myths not just the myth of the all-powerful Israel lobby, which is a fairly easy one to knock down, but also the the myth of aid as an essential uh, plank of U.S. support for Israel, without which Israel would either be, in the minds of uh, 
pro-Israel people, without which Israel would be existentially endangered, or on the flip side, without which um, the you know the the Israelis would finally be cowed and forced to accept the humbled and forced to accept the wisdom of Western policymakers, which is how the sort of anti-Israel people see aid as a, a prop that enables the Israelis to continue acting in these horrible, um, indefensible ways and, and refusing to make peace, et cetera. So the first thing we're doing is simply explaining the mechanics of the relationship and demonstrating that, in fact, that's not the case at all, that the uh, the aid, such as it's called, it's really credits that the Israelis are given to then make purchases from the U.S. arms industry, and that the the nature of the aid, therefore, is in effect a subsidy uh, to the U.S. arms industry, not an act of charity or a handout. Now, why is this uh, something that we want to end? Simply because we believe it's it doesn't benefit either country. The emphasis in our article for Tablet was on the ways in which aid uh, effectively hurts Israel, because we think that that's the case, and also because we understand the depth of the emotional uh, argument here. That the it's not an accident that the organized pro-Israel lobby in the U.S., and APAC is the most obvious uh, institution, but it's hardly the only one. It's no accident that they make the number one strategic priority for these organizations is the continuance of aid. And they have made aid the centerpiece of a larger, you know, basically they've made it this sort of loyalty test and centerpiece of pro-Israel attitudes or supports. So if you don't support aid, supposedly you are, um, you know, you're anti-Israel. And so our our piece was really aimed, we tablets a Jewish magazine, our piece was aimed at uh, American Jews and getting them to understand that this is not the case, and that in effect, they've been manipulated into thinking that. But if you pull out for a second, not I'll, you know, I'll make this the last point. If you pull out and you look at it in the broader sense, it's not actually benefiting either country. Aid specifically is not benefiting either Israel or the US. Now, the US derives some obvious advantages uh, from aid, which we enumerate in the piece, but those advantages are outweighed by the strategic framework that it locks the U.S. into, not only vis-a-vis -vis Israel, but vis-a-vis -vis a broader foreign policy. And so the, the, the bottom line argument is that it's not helping either country. That's a more counterintuitive argument to make uh, in regards to Israel, since Israel is the recipient of the aid. But that's essentially where we're coming from. And I'm happy to both hear why uh, why we're wrong about this and also attempt to defend this. I'll pass the microphone to Peter in one second, but before I do, I have to take strong issue uh, with one thing that you said, Jake, and that's that you called Tablet a Jewish magazine. And I write for Tablet, so I'd appreciate it if you'd say mostly Jewish magazine. Our definition of Jewish is interesting. So, so it's you writing for tablet is further proof that it's a Jewish magazine. Oh, okay. In that case, for Jews and, case, and the people fine. who no. love them. In, the, yeah, in exactly. that case, no, no problem, no problem. I, I withdraw my objection. We have a policy on the show that Mike Duran's pieces and/or authorship have to be mentioned in each episode in order for uh, the show to air. Otherwise, Mike <laughs> immediately demands the entire thing be stripped down and pulled off air. So I'm glad we gotten that commercial out of the way in the first 11 minutes. Maybe I'd just start with Liel and the, um, the comment you made, which I don't disagree with, that uh, Israel oftentimes plays center stage in American psychodramas in a way and is uh, almost a, a canary in the coal mine for some of our own social maladies. But I think that's maybe part of the point. And, and I guess I'd put it to you this way, or the question would be, if you stripped away American aid, how much less discourse would there be about Israel, which is to say, how much less would, would these same debates in the U.S. Uh, still still take place in the way that they take place? And I guess I would just posit that 
anti-Semitism in particular, anti-Zionism, the broader anti-Israel discourse in the U.S. is part of a deeper social undercurrent than it is specifically connected uh, to the aid. What do you say to that? I, I think that's a, that's a brilliant observation, and, and I will take it uh, – I, I see your observation, and I raise you. I'll take it one further, and I'll say that it is by far my absolute favorite feature of anti-Semitism uh, is that it has absolutely nothing to do with Jews. Uh, and yet here we are uh, having erected a premise that allows a very easy on-ramp uh, to anyone who wishes to cast Israel in all kinds of you know nefarious, uh, overheated kabuki theater – uh, as as the kind of natural habitat for which to have this kind of discussion. Uh, the amount of money that we sent to Ukraine, in actual aid, mind you, this year, uh, I think dwarves everything uh, the U.S. has given to Israel ever. Uh, and yet we chose to open the piece uh, with what I think is, is a very telling and, if we're being honest, very funny example uh, of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, changing her vote ever so dramatically from no uh, on the question of USA to Israel to present uh, and then rushing over to People magazine uh, to tell of the heartbreaking moments uh, in which she started crying, in which she had to cast that vote. That level uh, of, of tremulousness, you know, that level of, of sort of like emotional uh, dyspepsia uh, really, I think, betrays the fact uh, that we are talking about much, much, much more than facts and figures here. Now, uh, juxtapose uh, over that the fact that we now have an American administration that feels uh, very, very open uh, and comfortable from its uh, local ambassador to the commander-in-chief opining uh, on the domestic policies uh, of an ally nation. Uh, juxtapose onto that the fact that the Israeli demonstrators themselves have now taken um, to marching across the street from the former site of the U.S. Embassy to Israel uh, and are begging as several high-powered Israelis uh, begged in an article, I believe, on The Hill or Politico today, including the former head of the Secret Service, uh, that Biden should intervene as the United States once intervened to save South Africa from apartheid. And you see the really, really corrosive, corrupting effect of the aid, which begin with giving uh, anti-Semites or anti-Semitic adjacent humans uh, a very convenient premise to say, oh, look at the Jews, we're giving them $4 billion in aid when we could have been giving this to you know poor children in Alabama who need after school you know hot lunches and activities. Um, to the fact that it has really kind of grown, and that we could talk a lot more about this later, it has grown a, a sort of a, a homegrown Israeli elite class that now sees its proximity uh, to the teat of American power uh, and the ability to suck thereon uh, as the premier virtue and premier qualification skill set that it could now go to its electorate and say, well, look how essential I am to this nation. I speak American. Uh, it's all just bad. I, I, we really, the two of us, if we believe in anything, we, we believe that any relationship entered onto on, on these false, you know, weird premises, it, it never going to end well. We've had, I won't speak for Jake, I've had enough, you know, relationship gone sour in my life to know that when you enter into relationships on very bad premises, it, it never ends well. Jacob, uh, you have uh, an American military background. And uh, there have been uh, a number of arguments made I'm, I'm, on Talbot's website. There's been uh, a reaction by Ted Cruz, by uh, Dennis Ross, by Rich Goldberg, and uh, and and and, uh, and others. Let's talk about Rich Goldberg. He he goes through some very specific arguments about how this is bad militarily for the readiness of the the IDF. Did those arguments give you? Any pause? I think you made a point, and of course they gave me pause. Um, but ultimately, not ultimately. I I think that it's the evidence he's presenting is not necessarily wrong. It's just insufficient and not the full picture. And also, I, I can present you with security experts, retired IDF Major General Gershon Cohen, who we cite in the piece. Um, who makes the opposite argument, who argues that purely in military readiness terms, having nothing at all to do 
with the psychosexual, emotional melodrama of American politics that this is a, a bad deal for Israel because it stunts the development not only of domestic uh, weapons manufacturing capacities, but also it stunts the tactical operational thinking of Israeli commanders who end up essentially uh, limiting their sort of tactical imagination to what's available through American weapons platforms. And, uh, you know, I, I do have an American military background and I I see this from both sides. And the the arguments about the the ways in which aid gets wrapped into this sort of operatic uh, thing that's playing out in American politics in which Jews uh, get cast in all sorts of roles, uh, but often as, as you know, schemers and, and villains, um, among other roles. That's true, important. Uh, we pointed out in the piece, but I think ultimately in my consideration, secondary to the um, the readiness question. In other words, if aid was a convenient foil to anti-Semites, but was in strictly material terms uh, a great benefit to Israel and the U.S., then I would favor continuing aid. It's precisely because I don't think it's a great benefit that I, and, and in fact, I, I see it as a detriment that I think we should end aid. And let me just make one more point following up on something Liel said, which I think is really crucial. This Israeli leadership class that now views its own uh, mandate, now views its ruling legitimacy and authority as being essentially a function of its proximity to American power, I think it's easy or intuitive to understand why that might be bad for Israel. Right. You don't want your domestic leadership class to believe that it's, uh, you know, its status is tied up in how much it can please a foreign nation, even if that foreign nation is a, is a key ally. Right. Legitimacy should be based most of all in service to your own country, you know, the, the benefit you provide to your own people. So it's easy to understand why that's bad for Israel. Let me explain why that's also bad for America. You know, I am in general opposed to the American uh, management of a system of client states in which core American national security interests take a back seat to the servicing of uh, clients and client states. And I, I make a distinction between client states and strategic allies. A strategic ally possesses or presents a core value, a core benefit to the U.S. core national security interests. Clients uh, within the, the current American imperium, as it were, benefit the American ruling class. They don't. The, so in other words, the management of the Israeli ruling class by the American ruling class benefits the ruling class of both nations. It does not necessarily, obviously, in any sense, uh, straightforwardly benefit the either the, the U.S. or nation of Israel. And I'm, I'm happy to draw that out further, but I, I think that that's a a key point to make because it explains why even in a an arrangement where there's a lot of money flowing back and forth and there are a great number of officials on both sides who are interested in preserving the status quo and I'm not you know I'm not making any claims about the motivations of those officials I'm merely pointing out that there's a, a lot at stake here and there's a status quo in which officials on both sides clearly benefit it is not at all clear that the nations benefit in a fundamental sense. Peter and Mike, can I can I be the pushy Israeli and and ask to add on to something Jake just said, very strictly based on the on on the military capability question? I, I'm asking for permission. It's the most un-Israeli thing I think I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I should have my citizenship revoked. Look, the, uh, the most un-Israeli thing you've done in your life is write the piece about. Uh, Ending aid from the United States to to Israel. 
I, I walk I'm in. I'm, I'm in Tel Aviv now, and I, I walk incognito. I, I wear my Mets cap and my head low. Look, look. We we stated uh, in in the piece um, this kind of shocking fact that really shouldn't come as a shock. Let, let me let me kind of uh, preview it a little bit. Jake and I had our first real date. You know, the first real time we met and talked, uh, we exchanged stories about what it was like uh, to serve in the Israeli army versus what it was like to serve in the American army. Uh, and, you know, the TLDR, too long didn't read version of that conversation was that we might as well have been talking about two different realities and on, on two different universes. These are not the same things, not the same mindsets, not the same capabilities, not the same ecosystems, because two very different countries with two very different needs. Now, fast forward to one of these uh, kind of truly shocking facts that, that we bring out in, in the piece, which is very painful, uh, which is a recent report from the Government Accountability Office that looked at... Um, you know, 26 major defense acquisition programs uh, and found that more than half of them had yet to deliver operational capabilities and were delayed due to a whole host of, you know, anything from supplier disruption, software development delays, quality control deficiencies, whatever brokenness in the system you can imagine. Now, here you have an Israeli ecosystem that is specifically, defense industry, that is specifically built on this notion of of nimbleness, of, of you know, kind of like... Uh, a lot of improvisation, a lot of sort of like needs-based solutions, uh, complete lack of hierarchy. Uh, you know, my friend Dan Senor captures it wonderfully in his book, um, Startup Nation. Um, and here you have a sort of American behemoth. It's not just an American behemoth, but also an American behemoth that by most accounts uh, is not even doing the full thing that it is supposed to be doing. And the risk that we run, and, 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 and Rich Goldberg's arguments are very, very, very poignant and you should be taken very seriously, but we see him, those arguments, or at least I do, and raise him the fact that to ask Israel to tether itself to a very massive uh, industry, uh, arms industry in a different nation, doing things in a very different way, training all of its minds and all of its energies and all of its interests uh, to, to the American behemoth, uh, as the American behemoth is 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 staggering, uh, the worst it's ever staggered, or stumbling, the worst it's ever stumbled, is not an open and shut case uh, for for growth and capabilities. And let us also remember that Israel sold three times as much uh, in in arms. Uh, in 2022 alone than it received in aid, including more than a quarter of that 12 point something billion dollars to Arab states that arrived without any American intervention uh, or, or, or encouragement. This is not, you know, a minor country that is, uh, that is here and, and deeply dependent. This is a, a nation, an industry busy being born and should be encouraged to be born on its own terms. But isn't that a bit of a tension that on the one hand you're describing, and I think in your opening bit, uh, Liel, you described it as a formidable military-industrial complex, now a major arms exporter. On the other hand, Jacob described the stunted growth of uh, the Israeli defense industry because of its ties to the United States. Do you think that Israel's defense industry is better off in its development without American resources, input, sort of intellectual capital, et cetera? Because my impression talking to American defense analysts and deep in the bowels of these agencies where high-tech products are developed, be it missile defense to other areas, that there is a, if not symbiotic relationship, at least a regular exchange that's helped superpower some of Israeli industry. It, would, would Israel, are you that confident without this aid and without all that goes with it, the broader ecosystem of kind of the American uh, partnership, that Israel would be able to maintain that trajectory? I, I will say three very brief uh, things. They're, they're actually numbers uh, rather than, or I'll mention three statistics uh, and then and then and punt the ball to, uh, to my dear and, and much smarter colleague. The first number is $1.3 billion, which is what, according to the Israeli <laughs> Defense Ministry itself, what Israel loses annually uh, in revenue uh, because of uh, the, the stipulations of the um of the memorandum of understanding uh the MOU that that is basically the the core of the aid uh the second number that uh we got from the Israeli think tank INSS uh is anywhere between 20 and 80,000 
jobs uh, lost annually in the Israeli defense industries uh, as a result, again, of certain kind of uh, strictures ha having to do with the aid. Uh, and the third and most troubling thing is the, uh, the OSP, the Offshore Procurement Clause, that allowed Israel to spend around 26% of the aid it received on its own domestic product, which uh, is soon slated to end, uh, meaning that Israel would even though it's losing money right now and can't have a certain kind of growth right now, would have a far more onerous situation once it can no longer spend even the quarter or so of the, of, of the credits uh, in Israel itself. But Jake, I'm sure you will be much more insightful on in that. Fundamentally, it's also it's a, uh, the choice is false. It's a false binary. It's, there is not actually a choice between either maintaining the current aid relationship on the one hand or severing all ties between the Israeli defense industry and the U.S. defense industry on the other hand. that's It's not what we call for, nor is that a, a plausible outcome. The What we call for and what we believe is a plausible outcome is that if you end the aid relationship specifically, you allow a healthier, more mutually beneficial relationship and partnership to flourish both between the two defense establishments and between the two defense industries. So it's true, as you point out, that there appears to be some contradiction between our claim that the, uh, the growth of the Israeli uh, uh, arms manufacturing, as well as the uh, tactical leadership has been stunted uh, by the, the aid relationship that seems to contradict the fact that uh, Israel is this booming arms export business. But, you know, the, the truth is that the arms exports are all subject to, to veto by the U.S. Um, and they they both limit Israel's, uh, let's say, selling power and also its strategic leverage. And that occurs within the framework of a relationship that is really a superpower client state relationship. And that superpower client state relationship made a lot more sense during the Cold War. It's not as if there was uh, no historical basis for this outside of some, you know, we're, we're not claiming that the origins of this relationship are uh, purely exploitative. It has an historical precedent. It made sense in the context of the Cold War. At least it made a lot more sense in the context of the Cold War. However, it's outlived that. And the terms of the relationship now um, actually inhibit the kinds of uh, complementary defense establishments where each partner could benefit the other by providing something the other doesn't excel in necessarily while collaborating where it makes sense to collaborate on, on certain key platforms or technologies. And that's the kind of relationship that, in the absence of aid, could flourish. You know, it's not as if ending aid would mean that the two countries would be set on some irreconcilable path. So the U.S. and Israel will remain strategic partners, but there will no longer be any aid. That means that the relationship becomes something like the relationship between the United States and France, I guess. Or Canada. Canada, and but the power differential remains. Israel will not become autarkic. It will still be dependent on American systems. It will want to be dependent on American systems. It will want its 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 military trained to a NATO standard and on NATO weaponry and 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 so on, and all of those controls that are based on on technological concerns, concerns about technological transfer, and also political and strategic concerns. I don't see that those go away because you get rid of the aid. The superpower client relationship is inherent because of the power differential and because of the desire of Israel to be part of the American, you know, the, the American military, uh, military system. Um, now, I, I, don't, I don't think I know enough about technically about the different possible systems that Israel might build without American technology and where it might be able to sell them. And, but it's hard for me to imagine that you get a, a structural change in the relationship that is as dramatic as you are implying, and B, that all of that other stuff that you started with, all of the psychological, cultural, 
aspects, that those are really much changed by essentially what, what, what essentially, forgive me for belittling it here, but it, it is a kind of a question of bookkeeping about, you know, what bureaucratic categories do we define the patron-client relationship between the United, the United States and, and, and Israel? Yeah, the United States gives very little aid to Japan, but Japan's defense is totally dependent on, on, on the United States. So what's the, what's the model we're groping toward? And, and does that new model really change any of the things that you guys are talking about? Well, look, one of the counter arguments here is that, the, for, for instance, the elimination of the OSP provision, which had allowed Israel to continue producing something like 26 percent of uh, of its uh, armaments domestically and which gets phased out in the current MOU is not just bookkeeping. There are, you know, and the, the figures Liel cited attest to that. It has a significant impact on the domestic arms industry. It also has a significant employment impact. Um, there are other aspects of this that would be less immediately consequential. But what you're looking at in both countries is a conjoined defense industry, which is simultaneously over-financialized and under-capitalized. Right? The U.S. is having difficulty producing artillery pieces. The U.S. is having difficulty um, building new naval ships. We're, we're falling behind in the U.S. Uh, along a number of key uh, force projection, military readiness metrics that have to do with the problems, systemic problems in the um, defense industry in the U.S., which is simultaneously, you know, makes a ton of money, obviously, and is highly financialized, but has a difficult time actually producing things to the capacity that it it needs to produce them. So the reason why I bring that up, and, and Israel is now more and more reliant on that system, and by the time the current memorandum of understanding for military aid that was signed by President Obama expires in 2028, Israel will be even more tied into that system, which has these systemic problems. Now, that's that creates issues for both the U.S. and Israel, because it means that the the U.S. the problems I just uh, you know I just spelled out those are obvious problems for Israel as well. But now Israel, having essentially deindustrialized to some extent as well, can no longer either provide for itself or backfill certain key capacities for the U.S. So it's it's not necessarily good for either nation, but that problem, which might seem like a bookkeeping problem in its initial stages, becomes a, a you know, if not an existential problem, then a much more significant risk in the event of one of these key shortfalls that might occur. You know, which is maybe a long way of saying that some of these what appear to just be rounding errors or bookkeeping adjustments um, are more significant than they appear at first because you don't really pay due on them um, until a, a crisis occurs where those uh, accounting uh, figures add up to something larger. You know, Dennis Ross, in one of his rejoinders to your piece, talked about, I don't know if you put it this way, but basically um, the speed of development that comes along with American know-how, but also funding. I think he raised the Iron Beam laser-based defense system as an example of this. And in light of uh, an area of the world I specialize in, the Ukraine war, where we're learning a lot about the nature of major conventional warfare today and the implications, the ripple effect that will have those lessons for our own force posture going forward, the types of systems we might invest in. Before the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 2020, drones are sort of a niche a topic, for example. They've clearly um, become a topic du jour now amongst the defense community, but also the general, the general kind of foreign policy community. And Iranian drones are playing a big role uh, in Ukraine. So for that reason, I wonder, since you're calling for an end to, to US aid now, is this the time to, I guess, you know, some would say severing a limb, you would say pulling off the Band-Aid in a way, given that right now there are so many changes afoot 
lessons being learned. And the U.S. can play such a decisive role in learning those lessons, funding the next level and the next generation of systems um, and adjusting to the implications of the war in Ukraine, or which seems to be looming over your piece, do you think Israel has achieved such almost superpower level status that it's able to handle some of those adjustments without uh, without American aid? Or is that just a framework you would reject altogether that I just posited? I would sort of reject it, uh, not altogether, mostly together, partially together. There is no denying that the probably major argument against our argument uh, is the simple uh, statement that uh, American credits mean that you get to go to the top of the line, that even if you wish to purchase whatever kind of American weapon system on the open market, there is absolutely no guarantee that you would receive it or receive it in the time frame that you need it. That is all precisely true. There is also no denying the fact that Israel has uh, has grown substantially uh, and has grown substantially as as a as a kind of weapons manufacturer precisely uh, to address the very specific sets of problems and challenges that it is having uh, or or opportunities that it is having with with its own domestic and, and you know, kind of natural issues that it is facing, uh, which explains, for example, why Unit uh, 8200 of the Israeli army has gotten so uh, miraculously great at uh, all things cybersecurity. Uh, I think these two things point back to what Jake was saying earlier, the notion that the nature of the American-Israeli relationship is, uh, if not uh, you know, unequal uh, footing, uh, at the very least, reciprocal. America now enjoys, as part of the aid, uh, unprecedented access uh, to these incredible technological minds, uh, to an intelligence community that is very robust, not only in the Middle East, but, you know, uh, all over the world. Uh, and those are, uh, especially considering the price that America is paying for them, uh, which we argue in the pieces bargain basement, those are things that are very valuable to the United States. What we're saying is let let this collaboration and cooperation flourish, but let Israel acknowledge its own needs uh, of, of, of production and manufacturing, development and research. Uh, let the United States uh, tap into whatever it needs to tap into uh, and let it all be done uh, under kind of a, a fair and equitable premise. And sure, there may be some speed bumps uh, like speed of delivery. Some of them may be uh, consequential, but if anything, and, and the piece also kind of details uh, in part the, the history of uh, the United States' refusal uh, to, to aid Israel, because again, it, this is a very, very recent uh, development. This has not been, aid has not been, American aid has not been the case in the first you know, several decades of Israel's existence. Uh, that led in great part uh, to Israel's flourishing in, in domestic manufacturing of, of what it needed. Uh, and also in finding, you know, other partners uh, to trade with. So we truly believe that ending this aid would make the relationship uh, stronger, not weaker, and that uh, it will also allow the relationship to be predicated and based on what it needs to be based on, which is not a reality that has ceased to exist uh, for at least a decade, if not two. There are two things that I that I like about your article. The two things that I like about it are, one, it amuses me. Uh, I'll tell you what amuses me. It, it, that that it is our goal, Mike. Let's be clear. That's why we wrote it. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of a, a, of a uh, Jake, you're probably too young, and Peter, you're probably too young to remember this. And, and Leo, you're a foreigner. You got, did you guys ever see the Jerry Springer show? Yeah, of you know, course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, so you, know, so you know, Jerry Springer, it's just manufactured controversy. And then all of a sudden, everyone in the audience is saying, Jerry, Jerry, I've got right, something to right. say. I've got something to say. So what I, what I find is that I, I have yet to talk to anyone who agrees with your article. I really have not met anyone who agrees with your article. So I, I shouldn't say that. I, I guess I know Carolyn Glick. She agreed with it. But I haven't talked to anyone who agrees with it. And yet everyone wants to, everyone wants to, uh, it touched a nerve. It touched such a nerve. Everyone wants to wants to weigh in and publish an article saying we don't agree that that there's a, there's a real <laughs> insecurity there that I don't uh, a sensitivity that I don't I don't completely understand. I guess maybe I do. I don't. I don't know. But anyway, that amuses me. The other thing, on a more serious note, is your article touches in a way on something that really bothers me. It's not directly related to your argument. It's indirectly related. 
And that is this, as in Israel, you have an elite, our elite is primarily democratic. The Democratic Party has a foreign policy. That foreign policy is appeasement of Iran. And the, the Democratic Party, to the extent that it has colonized the Israeli elite, to the extent that it is a protectorate of the United States, and I'm not saying it, it is a protector of the United States, but as you guys are arguing, it's moving in, uh, uncomfortably in, in that direction. It's very difficult for the Israelis to have a policy on Iran, which I think every Israeli in the national security establishment would say is an existential question for Israel. And it's, it's very difficult for it to have an independent policy of the United States. It's very difficult for Israeli decision makers to stand up and even admit that this conflict exists, that we're not, this isn't a case of we have the same goals, but different tactics as the, as the administration would like to, uh, you know, is pretending. It's actually different goals and it's different goals on an absolutely fundamental issue. There's an extent to which among the Israeli national security elite that they're not capable of even admitting it to themselves. I'm not I'm saying to themselves. And that's not true of everyone. There's plenty of people who can. But there are a lot of people I've, I've spoken to a lot of idea uh, generals and people in the in the Israeli deep state and Mossad Shin Bed. We call it the deep shtetl. But yes, the deep shtetl in the deep shtetl who can't admit it. And this is a, this is disturbing to me. Now I don't I don't know that ending aid is going to improve that, but but it but to me it, it your your article points at that problem. Well, if our article does nothing more than point at that problem, I would consider it uh, uh, wildly successful. You know, I, I'm not a policy person. I could be ninety nine percent wrong. I'm not a hundred percent wrong. I know I got something right, but. I could accept that on the particulars of the policy stuff, I'm 99% wrong. My ego is not invested in being right about that. I, you know, I don't have any, uh, I have neither a finely honed nor a profound understanding of policy. What I do understand is the, the nature of some of these strategic relationships and that I have thought about. And what I do understand is the particular forms of corruption that, um, the U.S. leadership has enlarged into a system of managing the world. And I understand that not simply from studying the case of U.S. military aid, but from my experience in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and from seeing the ways in which this uh, larger sort of superpower client system is justified, the forms it takes, the the various organs for distributing aid, the purposes of distributing aid in, in Afghanistan as much as in Israel. And, and what you're describing, Mike, in terms of the Israeli elite's inability to recognize its own interests, I think is clearly true. And there is a flip side to that, which is that if you believe, as I do, that the purpose of a foreign policy is to make and keep peace among ourselves and with all nations. You know, and I, I quote the late Angelo Codevilla himself quoting Abraham Lincoln and enunciating that as the, the essential point of a foreign policy. These kinds of elaborate um, client superpower relationships actually obscure those fundamental security questions on both sides. They they make uh, the one side invested in you know distributing its bounties in order to uh, pay off protectorates and dependencies, and they make the other side invested in getting that money, and it obscures the fundamental question of interests and national interests on both sides. I could be wrong. Um, I should say we could be wrong. Let me spread the liability around a bit. We could be wrong about uh, everything else, but I know that uh, we're right about that. And um, if we do nothing more than to make people take a harder look at that, I would be very pleased. On that note, then, on how, how did Iran factor into writing this article? I mean, what were what were you thinking about Israel's relationship, deterrence, war and peace, this particular moment in which? Iran's charging towards the nuclear threshold, or perhaps it's put on the brakes, perhaps it's accelerating, however you read it. 
What is your what is your take on how Iran factored into this? The immediate way in which Iran factored in was that the current memorandum of understanding, so the current aid agreement, which was signed by President Obama in 2016, went into effect in 2018, lasts a decade, okay, and which was famously touted in headlines across the US and in Israel as the largest MOU ever signed, the biggest aid agreement ever signed, coincided with, corresponded to the massive push for the Iran deal within the Obama administration. So in a conceptual sense, in thinking about what is U.S. military aid to Israel, what what does it do? What does it do on both sides? The starting point was that the biggest aid deal ever signed in history was signed by the administration that was simultaneously empowering Iran um, and and centering Iran within this new framework of uh, balancing equities in the Middle East. Yeah, although I guess like, just to push back on that, the counterpoint could be that despite Netanyahu's rather open disagreement with the administration, he still landed you know, the biggest aid package in, uh, in U.S. history now. So it doesn't actually mute Go ahead. But but look, I, I, I have very little to add here because, uh, look, I, I went to film school. That's literally almost, you know, the entire extent of my education. Imagine the opening scene from The Godfather. Right? You know, here's Obama saying, you come to me on the eve of signing the memorandum of understanding. You don't call me Godfather. It's it's literally that move, right? You don't need like to be a, a Hudson Institute, you know, brilliant uh, analyst. You just have to kind of look at at the power dynamics. And yes, BB was in a very tough spot. He he made a move uh, which could certainly be defended, uh, but also could very easily be understood by like what else is the guy supposed to do? Here he was with something that would have translated. Uh, as a really big victory, and the rejection of which would have translated as a paradigm shift, which, as as Mike very succinctly and accurately described, is something that is not even being entertained, even even in the abstract level, by virtually the entire monochromatic defense establishment. As as Jews, uh, we believe that that kind of unity is deeply troubling. Uh, we, we, we run away whenever we see that level of agreement and, and inability to contemplate dissent. And Iran has everything to do with it because Iran is, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the spectra haunting everything here. And, and again, I, I believe thoroughly uh, that it is no coincidence that the, the current MOU uh, dovetailed so neatly with, with the Iran deal. Okay, so Dennis Ross responded to you guys by saying, wrong message, wrong moment. You're emboldening the enemy exactly when we need to have a unified front. I think you basically answered that, but why don't you give a direct answer to that? Well, first of all, I um, to, to those keeping track of the Nobel Peace Prize, we have now brought Dennis Ross and Ted Cruz uh, in complete agreement. <laughs> so, you know, you know where to find us. Send, us. send us the prize. We will come and accept. But yeah, look, I, 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 I think it really is uh, as, as simple as that. Israel um, now celebrates a, a very bitter anniversary of uh, the Yom Kippur War, uh, which was a period in which famously uh, the entirety of the security establishment was in agreement. Uh, the agreement was that, well, you know, the Egyptians are never going to attack because dot, 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 and, and here we go. Someone smart, though I forget who, wrote a book I liked uh, about Eisenhower's Middle East policies called Ike's Gamble. I, I don't remember the name of the author right now. Rings a faint bell. Uh, something like that. Uh, but I remember it had a lot to do uh, with, with the fact uh, of what happens uh, when sort of faulty uh, kind of assertions uh, become, become dogmatic. Uh, and so we take again. I I, I will uh, I I will return a favor uh, and and spread the liability around and say that I think I speak for Jake when I say we take the critiques of Senator Cruz and and Dennis Ross very very seriously. Uh, our point again and again and again uh, was is and remains primarily to start this discussion, if for no other reason. Uh, that we believe that in 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 realities in which discussions like this don't happen, bad kind of uniformity blooms and mushrooms in its stead. That 
very frequently does everyone a disservice. And, and here there's a, a different element that we haven't touched on, but, but maybe we could touch on very, very briefly, which is the element of the American Jewish community, which for a very long time has been told that this particular framework was literally the only, and if not the only, certainly the most important uh, lens through which to view their attachment to Israel. Not, you know, 3,000 years of history, not religion, not deeply, deeply, deeply meaningful and also regenerative things, but this very specific arrangement. And if you dared ask questions, you were told, well, you know, you, you can't do it. You can't challenge it. Is it any wonder that such a vast majority of younger Americans say, you know what? We, we want out of this nightmare game. We don't care anymore. Uh, this is just me and, and my beard speaking. Uh, but I believe that at its heart of hearts, the American-Israeli relationship will never be another America-France or America-Canada simply because it rests on a much, much, much deeper connection uh, to a set of ideas, in, in our case, divine election, uh, two nations that understand themselves as covenantal nations with very particular uh, religiously inspired roles to play in the course of human events. Uh, I think that motivates, uh, has motivated American history fantastically well. I think it has motivated Israeli history fantastically well. It used to motivate the American Jewish community fantastically well. All, all I'm calling for here, I will not implicate poor Jacob Siegel, all I'm calling for is for return to first principles, for rooting our American-Jewish understanding of what Israel means to us and American-Israeli understanding of what this relationship means to us in what it truly is, which is a deep shared belief in ideas that go far, far, far deeper than dollars and cents or even immediate pressing security needs. Uh, Jacob, you want to take us home? What could I possibly add to that? Thank you. Uh, thank you for having us on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Shalom. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation. And we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>